Have a little note here from College Park, Maryland, which is, by the way, where the University of Maryland is. And I spent some time in that area at one point in my checkered career, Princess Eustatia, the fire eater with the Bartok European Circus, I'm sorry, received first and second degree burns when a fire broke out in the house trailer where she was practicing her act. She's a fire eater. And as she burned down her trailer, her husband, Count Desmond, the circus sword swallower, <laughs> lost his sword in the blaze. But in true fashion, he ate a bent coat hanger at that night's performance. Showbiz is just, you know, nothing like watching a guy eat a bent coat hanger. That's just great showbiz. I really like that. You know, speaking of uh, showbiz, uh, we have a very, I might add, uh, somewhat sensitive uh, theme for tonight's uh, program. You mind? Sensitive theme. That sure is sensitive. Good God, what's happened to Aunt Minnie? Come on, Auntie. Blow that thing. <laughs> yes. Well, what we'd like to do tonight, if we may... Come on now, that's it. We would like to salute one of the qualities that all of uh, the organic creatures of the Earth share. And that's total perversity and complete finkishness. So would you please uh, bring it up there? We're going to salute tonight the fink and all of us. Oh, 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 oh. That's what happens when you have too much wheat germ. Here, that cut it out there. That's terrible. That's terrible. By the way, speaking of, of, of wheat germ, <laughs> uh, you know, that, 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 that reminds me of a, of a thing here. You know, speaking of wheat germ, uh, I, uh, uh, I had an aunt. Uh, I guess uh, we all have, uh, you know, I, 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 I presume everybody has had relatives at one time or another. But uh, I had this aunt. And uh, little did I realize at the time that my aunt was a prototype of, of a great long line of, uh, of uh, American performers to come. That uh, my Aunt Claire, in fact, I still have my Aunt Claire. She's still around. Probably lived to be 400 uh, with the way she lives. But uh, Aunt Clara is, uh, well, how can I put it? Uh, uh, within each one of us, there is... The person deep down in his soul, each one of us, there is one small part of us that demands constant sympathy. Uh, that is the self-pitying side. You know, uh, oh, gee, none of you know how it is to be me. Oh, well, nobody appreciates what I do. You know, I, I, this, is a, this is part of the makeup of us. Let's face it, you know, you walk around saying, oh, wow. It, it runs through almost every novel. Let's face it. That's that's all Yosarian ever did was feel sorry for Yosarian, all the way through. You remember Yosarian, didn't you? You had that blimpy number thirty-four down on Twelfth Street. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this uh, this little side of us, it's it's the whining side. My aunt Clara was a magnificent and is to this day remains one of one of the greatest creative whiners I've ever known. Now, what does it take to be a a uh, kvetcher. Uh, this is a. <laughs> this is, by the way, a great word, vetch. Uh, what does it mean? The kvetch. Well, I sit in the corner and go, ah! 
All right. Uh, look what they're doing to me again. Oh, wow. Of course, uh, many a Gretcher becomes a leader of demonstrations. Uh, he, uh, he becomes uh, often uh, a second-rate politician, uh, if you can carry your kvetch into creative areas. And so uh, Aunt Clara, my, my Aunt Clara, uh, I, oh, I, I, to this day, whenever... Have you got any relatives in your, in, your, uh, in your background, whenever their name is mentioned, you get a specific kind of feeling? Well, when my... The name Aunt Clara is mentioned... Even this, you know, here it is now. It's, it's over 1,200 years uh, since this occurred. But my Aunt Claire, whenever her name is mentioned, and he, you know, I, I even mentioned it. When I mention it, I, I get the feeling of, of, of intense, almost stifling. I mean, it, like you're drowning in it. Intense boredom. Because Aunt Clara was the one in our family who always, this is part of her fetch, always volunteered to, quote, I'll take care of the children. You go out and have fun. Don't worry about me. That's what Aunt Claire would always... I, I could see, my, you know, my, my mother, my old man, and uh, my Uncle Carl. See, I, we had these, all these cousins. See, when you got you to... Gotta, you, know, you just have to appreciate when you live in a family, when your mother has had five sisters, and they have spawned the way uh, people spawn... Uh, they, that produces a whole crowd of cousins, all roughly the same age. Well, I was just one of a great mob of cousins, and it seemed like every couple of weeks, everybody, the grown-ups, were going somewhere. You know, they'd go to a big party or someplace like that. And my Aunt Claire would say, Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of the children. Well, she did. And uh, she had this way of, 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 of carrying around with her all the time. This this almost a palpable load. <laughs> you could just see it. And I said, kid, I didn't understand this stuff, you know. She, she almost a big sack of uh, self pity. And uh, and she would sit in the kitchen taking care of the kids, and she would uh, devise games. What do you say that all of us play hearts? Oh, play hearts. Well. Uh, she had this idea that we like to play hearts. Did you ever play that game? Terrible game. I don't know why anybody ever plays it. But uh, if, if we had these girl cousins. See, there's a whole crowd of girl cousins. My cousin Arlene would instantly lock herself in the john. My uh, Everybody who is, you know, has had a large number of cousins or and brothers and sisters knows that there's always one person out of, uh, say, every given 15 or 20 that spends most of their life in the john. Uh, <laughs> is this true? <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you all this tonight. You know all these things. You've lived the life. You know what life is about. Why should I tell you, you know? But uh, nevertheless, Arlene would immediately lock herself in a john and to do whatever she does for, you know, 8, 10, 15, 22 hours, maybe sometimes three days in the john. And uh, so me and my cousin Buddy, uh, you've never heard me talk about Buddy. Me and my cousin Buddy. My, my cousin Buddy was a very shifty cousin and a real city type. I want to tell you, this, this, guy, this guy was like the epitome of Chicago-type kids, which is very different from a New York kid. They're very different type kids. And, uh, and so here we are. Aunt Clara is taking care of the kids. Now, I don't want to start anything here tonight. I don't want, I don't want to give anybody any rotten ideas. 
But I'm going to have to tell you what actually happens <laughs> when when uh, when kids are being taken care of. Now, the, the the first thing I would like to say here, as almost a uh, a disclaimer of guilt, is this: I don't think at any point, any time in history, the adults of any given time knew or know or will know more than one-fifteenth of what goes on in their kids' lives. Do you accept this, Jerry? Okay, fine. We're in, in agreement on that. No, the, the, uh, let's put it this way. The uh, percentage may vary, maybe between one-fifteenth to one-twelfth, <laughs> but never any more than that. It may go all the way down to one-ninety-fourth depending on how shifty the kid is, you know, and how much you can get away with. And that, a lot of it has to do with the neighborhood. You see, if you, live, if you live in the country in a little house surrounded by nothing but fields, it's very hard for a kid to live much of a secret life, although he will manage it. This is a fact. Uh, and it will be not as satisfactory. But one of the great things about living in the city is that you can have a very rich, tremendously uh, vibrant Secret life <laughs> that, that nobody, the minute you walk out of the house, there's 27 million opportunities to do 28 million things. And so uh, you can live a, a, just a fantastically rich, a totally uh, just, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole uh, human uh, uh, compost heap of existence all by yourself. Well, I used to look forward to these days for one reason. I mean, these days when the Aunt Clara would uh, be popped on us, you know, it, uh, uh, first of all, Aunt Clara and her apartment bored me. She had one of these apartments that was always hot. There's a certain type of ant uh, where the uh, the apartment is very hot, and there's always something going, you know. <laughs> and I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, that makes apartments hot. And uh, she had this canary. And naturally, it was named Petey. All canaries are named Petey. And so this canary would go, you know, sit around and go, and she would say, oh, Petey, here, why don't you, all of your children give Petey some seeds? Well, you know, I, as a kid who owned a BB gun, uh, Petey was a natural enemy, actually. And uh, I, was not, I was not a, you know, a canary kook, although my cousin Merle, who was a girl type, was. And so the girls all hang around, you know, and they're feeding this canary. And Buddy who was my shifty cousin, Buddy would look over at me with the eye like, uh, how long is it going to be before we can split? Now, how old were we? We were about, I would say, between 9 and 12. That is a dangerous age. That's an age when a guy, can, when you make a lot of decisions, those decisions are made almost unconsciously. I think very few people are very little different no matter what their age is now, than they were inside, very definitely already formed, by the time they're nine or ten. Do you agree with that? Think about it now. Wait a minute now. Just I'm, I'm talking about in the ultimate way you are. Sure, you, you learn to be sharper, sneakier. You learn to buy your clothes at Barney's and get those fancy things. Uh, you learn how to order martinis. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. There's a lot of different uh, 
techniques you learn about life, but deep down underneath it, if you are if you are basically a coward at nine, and you're afraid that a ball is going to hit you in the mouth anytime you go out and play, and you're always afraid of guys named Al and Mike, you will be that way all of your life. You will be deeply afraid uh, that somebody's going to get up at the bar one time and say, "What was that? Huh? All right." That's the last time you're going to talk like that. And bam. So this is deep, deep. <laughs> you know. Oh, yes. Uh, very early in life, I'd say about nine, male kids either make the transition from being either the victims or the aggressors. Uh, right there at that point, you are either going to be forever a victim or, or ever an aggressor. You are either going to be a thumpy or a thumper. You will either be, you know, either you'll either be a victim or a bully. Uh, you ought to see somebody. You know, they're beginning to print their memos around here on, on asbestos. Fantastic. They, you know, they blow up into flame if you don't, <laughs> if you don't watch out. But, uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm just uh, proposing a theory here that, uh, you know, it's not so much of a theory. I mean, most psychologists agree with this, that you are pretty much, by the time you're nine, you are pretty much what you're going to be all of your life. Inside. Now, you may fake it a lot later. I mean, you could, may come into the bar, you know, once in a while and sit down there with this chick and you say, oh boy, Oh, listen, any of these guys around here get tough. Boy, I'll tell you what I'd do. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So the the uh, the problem, of course, arises immediately, uh, is how much control do you have over your life? I mean, how, uh, can you actually mold yourself into a newer, better, more dynamic person? You believe that. This is an American belief, by the way. And almost exclusively in the world do Americans believe this. This is why they're constantly having problems. Constantly becoming disappointed with life. <laughs> they bought every damn book they could buy. You know, how to become thin, how to become fat, how to become famous, how to become rich, you know, how to become uh, sensitive. They, they bought every kind of book. And they still remain the same old clutch. You know, there's still Clarence walking around. The only thing is now they've got a pile of old books in the corner. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a real problem with us. It really is. We, 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 I, guess, I guess that's what led the pilgrims to come over here. They, you know, when they first came over here, they really thought they could create a whole different new ball game. You know, it's a, and they were going to expunge evil. That was the beginning. You know, they, they were going to get rid of evil. Leave it all back there in Europe. Get rid of evil. And, of course, that persisted for many centuries, actually many generations. People believed that Europe is evil. We're good. And, uh, you know, they got all the evil over there. We got all the good stuff. And uh, yes, this is this is, and then it's still you see you, little pockets of this kind of lunacy still, still uh, you know still persist. But uh, nevertheless, we're 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 a group. We are we're a group of people that share one common myth, and that myth is that 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 man can become anything he wants to be. I'm just letting that marinate a little bit there. You know, you put a little salt on it. And uh, let it marinate there. So this is this is a this is a fascinating. He's got it. Yeah, he's got his little book in there. It's okay. <laughs> so uh, Americans are are almost bound to become more and more disappointed constantly in their lives. Disappointment is a great American uh, is a great American uh, quality, and you won't find it in many other countries because you see a guy a guy that uh, that is born, let's say. In India, he doesn't die disappointed when you know he might live to be seventy-five. He dies, and that doesn't mean he's tranquil, or it doesn't mean that their religion is any better or anything. But they don't have that myth going, and so by the time he's seventy-five, if he hasn't married Ursula Andrews and he hasn't uh, 
you know, he hasn't, uh, uh, you know, he hasn't gone out with Raquel Welch half a dozen times, and he hasn't uh, had a drink with Jack Lemmon and made a movie and become famous. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't feel anything was wrong with his life. But it's only in America, you see, where they actually everybody believes that that his he can be anything. He really does. He believes, and and you can see it in our in our literature. Horatio Alger was a great example of that. And you can call it the great American uh, myth. And I don't. It isn't really. It's a it's a it's a curious attitude towards life, which uh, almost totally ignores certain elements that other societies have recognized for a long time. Little things called fate. <laughs> or, or the immutability of certain uh, environmental factors. Oh, what, will you, what do you mean by that? You think you can, you can, you think you can re- make yourself over any time you want? Okay, we'll see. You come and tell me that five years from now. All right. Well, see what most what most people do is that they 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 confuse their activities with their being. So, oh, yes, they do. A lot of people say, what do you mean? I've changed myself. Look, at I'm a vice president now. I mean, dynamic. I've uh, Look what I've done. Well, he still remains the same guy that hides behind the jukebox anytime guys named Al and Mike walk into the bar. See, he hasn't really changed, and he knows this. Uh, and, and so people begin to get very angry, and they, they try to look for different religions to make it so. They This is why a lot of people are trying all kinds of mysticism and religion, somehow to change themselves into something they're not. One of the saddest crowds, these poor little kids that stand around in the street corners, you know, hitting little, ba- you know, banging on little tim- uh, tim- uh, symbols and stuff. And you just really feel sorry for these kids, you know? You really do. Because uh, you wonder how they're going to look back on that, you know, ten years from now when they look back. They wonder what the hell was all that about. But uh, nevertheless, this this is a you know it's kind of a kind of a fascinating problem. So anyway, here we are. Now, what? How are you formed? You see, you're formed. You're formed by a lot of things, and not necessarily traumatic experiences. I'm talking about secret life experiences, which don't have much to do with formal education, but have a lot to do with what you ultimately become. And so. Buddy and I are standing one day in the kitchen, and uh, Aunt Clara is now making fudge. That was one of her big bits. How would all of you like some fudge? She also used to make some kind of candy, which she called, Would you like to have, all of you now, would you like to have Angel's Breath today? That was a candy called Angel's Breath. It contributed tremendously to the prosperity of several dentists. I mean, uh, this stuff <laughs> had about a had about an octane of 175 as far as sugar was concerned. This is white, gooey stuff. Well, so so we're standing around the kitchen, and and uh, the, all these cousins, about 25 cousins. Now, one of the great things about having a whole gang of cousins, you know, there were at least well, I could tell you, my aunt Kate had four kids, my aunt uh, my aunt Min had five kids. So all right, there's nine already. There was me and my kid brother. There was uh, there were there were about twenty six cousins, literally twenty six cousins, all standing around in a kitchen this day. So it's easy to split when you're in a crowd. It's one of the great things about being in a crowd. By the way, I might point out uh, uh, if you've never thought about this, Skip, and uh, don't go away yet. One of the great things about working for a big company, Skip, is you can get away with a lot more, right? 
You work in a little company where there's just you and the other guy. Everybody knows who did it last night and why the meters burned out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the engineers relate to that. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, we're, we're uh, you know, me and Buddy are standing there and all these kids around. Now, I'll bet every kid listening now will look at it. I, you know, the thing about it is fascinating. Almost every parent believes he or she knows what their kids do. Well, what do you mean? I know. I know all about uh, Howard. Oh, yeah, sure. That's a, you know, they, they really believe this. And, 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 and it's, it's one of the great, there's another great myth. Uh, also, uh, <laughs> a lot of kids, uh, on the other hand, of course, there's confusion on both sides. Uh, you know, he, he, he has a, a sensation that his mother and father never did this stuff either. You know, that the, it only it was invented when he was around. So one day, Buddy and I are standing in the kitchen. We're about ten. And we were about to start a saga that persisted for about, I'd say, about two years. We're standing in the kitchen, and uh, my Aunt Clara said to Buddy, Would you, uh, why don't you two go down and get us some uh, popcorn? We'll pop some popcorn later, and you go down and get some popcorn. Go down to, uh, go down to Oshenschlager's and pick up a pound of popcorn and bring, oh yes, uh, bring along some, uh, bring along some butter, too. Now I'll give you some money, now hurry along. Well, Buddy and I goes down the stairs. Now they, she lived right in the middle of the city. Now this is right in the middle. Now if it was in New York, I'll tell you where it was, if, if you know anything about Chicago, it's, it's, uh, North St. Louis off Irving Park. It's up on the northwest side of Chicago. It's a tremendous big, residential area but there were stores and there were there were all kinds of little movie houses and stuff and and the buses and and the streetcars and everything going all around a place it's a big busy area see in new york it would be like uh like say uh roughly uh west end someplace like that 72nd of broadway something like that you know so we go down the street and the uh, buddy you know me and buddy and uh, we're walking along and we were, we're walking towards the, the, the store, see? And Buddy turns to me and says, hey. He said, uh, what do you say we go over and, uh, watch, uh, watch Jake's place? I said, Jake's place? He said, yeah. He says, there's this bar down here. He says, it's right on the other side of the show. He says, it's right down there by the grocery store. I said, what do you mean watch him? He said, well, we'll watch the drunks come out. I said, watch drunks come out? He says, yeah, come on. So this was a, actually, by the way, Saturday night. I have to point out that it was Saturday night because it was always on the weekend, either Saturday night or Sunday night, that uh, we were left with Aunt uh, Clara. You know, they were having a big party somewhere. I'd say, never in the middle of the week, never. It was always on the weekend. So, uh, you know, the bars, uh, that's when the big action goes on in the Chicago bars. So now the bars in Chicago are different, really, than they are in New York, because they, they really have the mystique in Chicago of the so-called neighborhood bar. Every block, I mean, without almost without exception, at each end of the block, on both sides of the street, there are bars, and usually three or four bars in between. 
and and so bars are really tremendous number of bars all over the place. See, and these are these are so-called neighborhood bars where where you know neighborhood guys would come in, and each each bar had its own little crowd of guys that would come in there, you know, and, and they're selling the uh, they're selling the uh, the uh, salted. Uh, uh, you know those little beef things and uh, all that jazzy lot of they had punch boards and the whole jazzy so this bar this one bar that we we began to hang around we'd stand outside so i go down there with buddy and we're standing around outside saying at first i didn't know what he meant see and sure enough we're not in front of this bar at a discreet distance more than five minutes when out of the door comes this guy, staggering like he's out of his bird. Hey, he walks out, and he he walks down the sidewalks, and he keeps falling off the curb. Well, but he says, "Okay, come on, let's go." Well, we followed this drunk, and and we just followed him wherever he went. So so he walks down to the end of the block, and and uh, he doesn't know he's drunk. You remember, he's really cockeyed drunk. He's going from one end of the sidewalk to the other. He just staggered around. So obviously, they pushed him out the door. They told him they didn't want him there anymore, see? So here he is. He's walking down the street. And he, 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 he was this kind of drunk. You know, there's a certain kind of drunk that will suddenly the horizon will tilt on him. And he, he makes a, a, a sudden run. He, go, <laughs> he runs across the sidewalk you know, at an angle, sort of an oblique angle, see? And then finally, he gets his, he gets his balance, uh, sort of, and he, he hangs on to something. He'll hold on to it very tight, like a wastebasket or a, you know, a street light or something like that. And then he makes another lunge. He goes lunging back and forth in a Z formation, like a ship tacking. And he's going up that. So we're watching. We're having a, we're, we're cackling. He gets to the corner. Now, this is a real drunk, remember? Street when when a drunk is really drunk, he doesn't look at like uh, you know whether it's red or it's the walk light or <laughs> he just out in the traffic instantly. Ah, the cars are they're going. To, we're laughing to beat hell. So it was a really great scene. So he he makes it through the traffic. It was, it was right out of a Laurel and Hardy thing. Cars are hitting each other. Guys are going up on the curbs yelling like, "Hey, boom, get out of the street!" And so we're laughing. Well, now he's up on a curb. We're following him. So. We follow him all the way down the next block. <laughs> and, and, and at that point, then, he, he, he suddenly, he, 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 gets, he gets very still for a moment. He holds on the side of the building, and he's getting real still. He just, he's not moving. And then he straightens up, and he begins to move back and forth, just, just wave. He just moved like, like, a, like, a, you know, like a, a flagpole in the wind, see? Just back and forth, he's going. And suddenly, he started to run, and he was running like his legs were made out of wet noodles. He was running down the sidewalk, and what was he running for? Well, down <laughs> about three or four houses down, there was a house that had a little hedge in front of it. He's heading for the hedge. He gets to the hedge, and I want to tell you, he unloaded all over that hedge. I mean, the guy must have had seven, eight, nine, fifteen quarts of beer in him, Two or three gallons of cheapo wine, about uh, eight, nine pounds of pretzels. He had uh, two or three of those uh, funny little electric sandwiches that they sell in bars. He had about uh, 40 or 50 of these little uh, salted beef jerky type things. And uh, all kinds of stuff. All over the hedge. It's going all over. And it, and it was one of these hedges that clipped real nice. See, all over the hedge. Well, <laughs> he's just, wow, he's just hanging on there and he's letting it go. See, why he didn't let it go off the curb, I don't know. But he saw the hedge, so he let it go. Maybe a deep instinct. Man has a desire to get back to the jungle when he's in trouble. So he's laying it out there. 
Well, instantly, almost immediately, out of the house comes this guy yelling like, man, get away from my head, you bum! Get away! And he runs down, he grabs a hold of the guy, and with that, the guy turns, and he lets it go all over him. Well, by this time, me and Buddy are just flipping, you know. We just love this scene, see? Well, and anyway, that scene wound up with a wagon coming, a blue one, picking up the drunk. Uh, the guy is bugged. You know, the stuff is all over his suit, all over the yard, all over the, all over the hedge. And when the, when the wagon drove away, both Buddy and I applauded loudly. We then went back and stood in front of the bar again, waiting for another one. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you stand in front of a bar, at least in Chicago, I don't know how, how good the business is where you are, but if you stand in front of a bar in Chicago, I would say action occurs on an average of every four to seven minutes. That, that's what we later found out. We timed it out. And, uh, yeah, you get very good at this. So we're back in front of the bar, and we're not there five minutes. When out of the door, boom, the door opens, and two guys roll out wrestling. <laughs> They're wrestling. They're hitting each other. One guy's got the guys, the other guy's tie, you know, uh, his tongue is sticking out, and they're rolling around. These two tank drunks are rolling around on the floor on the street there, you know. You can't get away with that. I'll tell you, my wife, you boom. And they're falling up and down. The wagon pulls up. They load them in. And by this time, there's a big crowd. And Buddy and I applaud. We're cheering, see? <laughs> well, then we took up our, our position again. And sure enough, four minutes later, out comes a lady, this time stewed to the gills. And I want to tell you, lady drunks are even funnier in some ways than men drunks. And, uh, yeah, she, she went down the street, see? And, uh, <laughs> it was really funny. Her shoe kept falling off. Uh, every, every time she'd go, you know, she'd go about maybe four or five feet, and she had these high heels. Well, her shoe would fall off. And then she tried to put her shoe on. Well, now, she was kind of a dignified-looking lady. I would say, uh, you know, silver hair type. And uh, she, would, she would edge over to the side of the sidewalk, hang out to the building, and try to put her shoe on. Well, she would take maybe 15, 20 minutes. The shoe kept falling. You know, she put it on backward and all that stuff. We're laughing, cheering. Well, all right, this goes on. It is now about an hour and a half. And uh, Buddy and I finally decided that we'd better go get the popcorn. So we go down, get the popcorn, we get the butter, and we go back up the stairs, and uh, there's Aunt Clara and all the kids, and they're all playing lotto, which, uh, by the way, is another totally numbing game. Have you ever played lotto? Have you ever heard of it? Oh, that's a big game among uh, ants in Chicago. They, they, they love that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit like hearts. Although it's played uh, it, that kind of a uh, you know, numbskull game, it's it's played with a, a cards. It's a little like uh, like bingo, you know. And you have little round pieces of of a wood, like little uh, markers that you put on cards, and they roll dice. It's called lotto. It's a very terrible game. So they're all standing around playing lotto. So obviously, Buddy and I have not missed a damn thing, which is of course to be expected at Aunt Clara's. So uh, we walk in, and Aunt Clara looks up and says, Oh, Buddy and Jeannie are here. Well, well, let's all have popcorn. Well, we go into the kitchen, so we're all popping a corn there. She says, What did you do when you were out? You, Oh, you were gone some time. I said, Oh, yeah, we just uh, went down to the store, and there were a lot of people, and we waited down there, you know. We had to wait. Oh, yes, of course, they're busy on Saturday. Well, let's all popcorn now and have some fudge. Well, my Aunt Clara never suspected that me and Buddy were immersed in human degradation. 
for the for the for the two hours. Well, from that time on, and I I, I really I, I should consider this a little more before I go on. But from that time on, Buddy and I, and of course. Uh, we 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 continued to go over to Aunt, Cl- Aunt Clara's house every other Saturday. It was always one of those scenes, but I used to look forward to it because Buddy and I instantly, as soon as we could split, would go down the stairs and go down to the bar and watch drunks. Now we did this for a, a, at least two years, and I mean we used to. Sometimes we would follow a drunk for maybe thirty or forty blocks to see where he would go. We would follow them usually to the end of the scene, you know, and, and uh, they were, uh, oh, we, we saw all kinds of fantastic incidents. I mean, if you follow a real drunk, you've got to see some action. I mean, you just have to in the, in the middle of a big city. Oh, yeah, just, just a tremendous thing. Well, it wasn't, oh, you know, two years we did this, and nobody to this day, as, as far as I know, nobody in the, in the family ever discovered what we did. Buddy and I, we, we were real drunk followers. And it wasn't, oh, you know, like like about five years ago, uh, I see Buddy, my cousin. See, he's still my cousin, you know. <laughs> you don't grow out of becoming, you know, he's still my cousin. So we're at this, uh, you know, official family gathering. And uh, and now, now Buddy is a very official-looking guy. And he wears these dark blue suits. And he's got these uh, very expensive uh, handmade uh, $25 ties. Oh, he's got these elegant shirts. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's a very official-looking guy, see. And, uh, oh, yeah, Buddy, Buddy's really made it, see. You don't call him Buddy anymore. You know? As a matter of fact, he's called Charles. And so uh, so we're, we're standing in the middle of this big family gathering. As a matter of fact, it was a, it was a, it was a family-type, you know, funeral-type scene, see. And uh, some obscure aunt had finally uh, decided to hell with it. She had enough. And uh, she left. She's, you know, her, her scene is over. So we're at the funeral. And uh, so Buddy and I are standing in the middle of this big crowd, a lot of people standing around, and uh, all kinds of uh, people we didn't even know, you know, friends of her, and well, everybody's very elegant, all dressed up in these suits, and the organs are playing, and all that stuff, and the flowers, and, you know, what do you do, you know, you just stand around, and uh, and I had said hello to my cousins, whom I had not seen for a long time, and uh, there's Buddy standing over there, I walk over to Buddy, see, and, and uh, we have, they had these little uh, sandwiches they were serving down there, it's kind of like a you know, like a reception room, and that they had little sandwiches and little little uh, glasses of uh, fruit punch and stuff. And uh, Buddy says, uh, "How are you?" And I said, "Okay, Buddy, how are you?" Oh, fine, fine, very official. I said, uh, "Oh, good to see you, Bud." Uh, hi, George. You've changed a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, so have you, you know. So, you know, after all, you know, that's the way it goes. A long pregnant pause, and then Bud says, "Hey, how'd you like to go out and watch some drunks?" Huh? <laughs> and I said, "Not bad, Bud. Let's go out." So here we are. We're grown-up men. Now wait a minute. We went out. The two of us walked out on the street, and uh, we walked down the street. And he says, "You know," he said, uh, "Do you remember those? Uh, you ever know, watch those drunks?" I said, "I sure do, buddy." He says, "You know," he said, uh, "Funny thing." He said, "Now," he said, "I'm grown up, you know," and he said. Uh, I go to some of those bars once in a while just to go in there and look and, <laughs> and have a drink there at an old bar, see, where he used to stand around out in front and watch as a kid. And we walk down the street. We're now five minutes. Sure enough, we pick up a drunk. And it's, it's a, you know, it's surprising. You don't lose your hand at that kind of stuff. You, once, once you're a skulk, once you're a sneak, you, you, you retain your, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You never forget it. 
You never forget how to swim or run a typewriter. You never forget how to track drunks once you've tracked a drunk. So Buddy and I, at a discreet distance, we pretend like we're looking in a storefront, you know, and this drunk is staggering down the street. That he's going, ah, he's singing, ah, 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 ah. and uh, this goes on for about ten minutes. And sure enough, a cop comes along and gives him a rap and uh, throws him in the car and takes him away. But he says, you know, it's kind of good, you know. Some things never change. Well, I said, that's true, bud. Some things never change. That a drunk in the days of the Roman Empire must have been just like a drunk in the days of Attila the Hun. And uh, a drunk hanging around outside the cave when they first discovered that fermented pomegranate juice knocked you on your behind must have been pretty much, can you imagine a drunken caveman sitting over in the corner and all the others are trying to, you know, calm him down. Will you stop it, you know, for a while? Well... Some things never change. And that, so even today, even today, I must tell you that uh, this is, a, at this point, plays a distinct role in my life. That today, uh, when I come down 6th Avenue or walk up 7th Avenue, I, I often wonder, you know, how great it would be to have Buddy with me. Because he would appreciate 6th Avenue. I mean, I, he would appreciate 3rd Avenue even more. Because 3rd Avenue has some unbelievably great drunks. Uh, other streets, no. I mean, you don't find a decent drunk on on the 5th Avenue. Very rarely. Nah. And uh, all, any of the drunks you see on, on Park Avenue are in cabs. So, you know, that's no good. But if you want to see a good drunk in New York, you, 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 any of you like to, the, would you like to try your hand? Well, I would tell you, uh, I've, I've done a little work and a little research on the side, that the, that the area between... Roughly 23rd Street on 3rd Avenue up to about 50th Street is one of the best drunk tracking virgin territories that I have ever known since, uh, you know, since the northwest side of Chicago. Of course, that, that stands alone. Stands alone. I mean, <laughs> at the, so once in a while on a, on a Saturday night when I don't have much to do, I go down and follow a few drunks, see how it's going. And I'll tell you another thing. The New York drunk doesn't quite have the, uh, well, the complete uh, abandon that the Chicago drunk has. Maybe it's because New Yorkers tend to be a little, uh, a little reserved, a little afraid of each other. But, but a New York drunk tends to be a little furtive, a little secretive. Uh, and although I did see one great one the other night, by the way, right down here at 40th and Broad, I saw a drunk, beautiful, beautiful movie made. Uh, this, uh, I, I saw this drunk come and see. I was walking... Uh, up Broadway, and he was coming down Broadway. That is sort of coming down Broadway. It was like he was, uh, you know, the wind was blowing him, see? And uh, <laughs> actually, he wanted to go across town, but somehow he got, you know, he got in the cross grain of streets, and he's 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 coming down Broadway, and there was a big, you know, a lot of traffic. It's noontime. Everybody's moving up and down, and you should see him. Fantastic. He came slanting down through the crowd, and for some reason or other, uh, one of his shoes got untied, see? It was, yeah, and it was on sideways. And he's, he's slanting through the crowd and he's bouncing off of people like a, like a, you know, like one of these balls in a, in a pinball machine. See, he kept hitting things that's a tilt and they bounce off. Well, he finally staggered over and he's got a hold of one of the New York City Make New York a Cleaner Place baskets. You know, these baskets and he's holding on to it. He's got his arms all around the top of the basket and he's just standing there. Just holding on, and he's slanting at a roughly, I'd say, oh, 60 degree angle. He's leaning out there, he looked like an A frame. 
And he's leaning out there, and he ain't moving. Now, this guy was wearing an elegant Brooks Brothers suit. He, he was, uh, you know, dressed to the nines. He had this Countess Mara tie. At the, oh, you could see, you know, one of these a beautiful double-knit shirt, body shirt, the whole bit. He had an elegant mustache. You know, he was right out of Gentleman's Quarterly, except for one thing. He was leaning at a 60-degree angle. And he had a hold of the... He had a hold of the top of this wastebasket, you know, this garbage can. Well, people just kept walking by, looking at him. And unfortunately, I had an appointment. Or I would have followed that guy to wherever, what, hell and gone destination he finally wound up in. Because he looked like a beauty. One of the best I've seen in years. This is the Eastern Public Radio Network.